This is They Create Worlds, episode 126, Activision and Atari. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we've had a lot of fun with a bunch of different kinds of companies, a bunch of founders, a bunch of craziness out there. But you know one thing that we don't talk enough about on this podcast, Alex? Video games? Atari. Oh, Atari. We obviously do not talk enough about Atari here. To continue our trend with Atari, we want to look specifically at a certain company putting out games for the Atari VCS, and that is Activision. You may be thinking, but Activision, they did things more in the modern era with, like, Nintendo and the Super Nintendo and whatever Activision Blizzard is doing now. We don't know. But they had their starts back in the wondrous glory days of the VCS, so we wanted to look at what wonderful game they put out there that put them really on the map, that made you go, You know, I want this company to actually survive the crash and continue on into a wondrous new era. (laughs) Sure. So, of course, we've covered the Activision history broadly. We've talked about the beginnings of the company. We've talked about the later years of the company. We've done a lot of Activision history. But what we're going to do in this episode is something that we don't really do all that often, which is take a deeper dive into some of the games. Because Activision was, as most of our listeners I'm sure are aware, the first third-party developer. This was the first time that a company other than a company that put out a piece of video game hardware was creating games for a piece of video game hardware. In order for that to work, in order to instill public confidence in the idea that if you have an Atari VCS, it's okay to buy from someone that isn't Atari, or if you have a Mattel Intellivision, it's okay to buy from someone that isn't Mattel, You have to have a certain level of pizzazz and a certain level of innovation and interest in your products to get people to want to buy those games, particularly since uh, you're usually going to have to price them even a little bit higher than the game console creators because you're having to totally make your profits on this. You don't have hardware and other ventures to fall back on as well. The Activision output is definitely worth discussing in that context. Now, one more point of order before we get started. Activision started in Mountain View, California with that core group of four Atari programmers, Alan Miller, Bob Whitehead, David Crane, Larry Kaplan. Technically, Larry Kaplan didn't join right at the beginning of the company, but he's still essentially a founder. Then over time, they expanded into development centers, which we talked about in our Activision episode, in other parts of the country. So we're only going to talk about the stuff that was going on in Mountain View, in that part of California. The excellent work being done by the Kitchens, the Kitchen Brothers in New Jersey, stuff going on in Boston, Sacramento, other parts of the country where they also had developers. We're not going to discuss those games. We're really just going to focus on what was going on in the main office. We won't quite hit everything that was done during that time period, but we're going to hit some that are interesting and kind of show the Activision design philosophy and what exactly they were trying to do and what kind of statements they were trying to make in this video game space. Sounds like a good roadmap to 
delve into. Since we already have established a company, what is the first major game that they put out there for the VCS? Their first four games were all announced simultaneously at the June CES in 1980. They came out then before the end of the year. They didn't come out in June, but that's when they first started advertising and promoting them. Before we get into those games specifically, though, we really need to talk about some of the basic philosophical underpinnings that came out of these guys forming this company. So as we know, we're not going to rehash everything, but the four developers that left Atari to form this company were four of the best individuals at squeezing the most that they possibly could out of the Atari VCS. The Atari VCS was not an easy console to do anything with. It did not have a frame buffer. It was drawing the screen line by line. There were very intricate timing issues that had to be worked out. It had very little RAM, only 128 bytes. You had very few cycles to work with as well. So you're doing timing, you're counting cycles, and you're working with what is technically just five objects. Four player objects that can be of varying width, though only up to eight bits total, though, so still not that big a size, and one ball sprite. You're working with 128 bytes of RAM, and you're working with a maximum addressable memory space of 4K, 4 kilobytes. Everything you're doing has to fit within these constraints. Atari did eventually start using bank switching on a very, very small number of their later releases, which meant that you could actually have more stored in ROM than just 4K because you would switch between different banks of memory and that allowed to have the illusion of having more memory available. Activision basically stayed within that 4K constraint in their games. In terms of the sprites, the player missile graphics, as they were called them because the term sprite hadn't been coined yet, even though there were technically only five, you could reuse them. Because the screen was drawn line by line, it updates before each line is drawn, and so you can actually reuse a sprite that you've already used further up the screen, further down the screen. Because it's not a frame buffer, it doesn't have screen memory, it, the system doesn't realize it's already used that sprite. Larry Kaplan, one of our founders of Activision, also came up with something called the H-Move while he was still at Atari, which basically, because of the peculiar way that it drew graphics, there was a call called HMove that actually allowed you to reposition a sprite on the same line as well. You had some tricks to get more objects on the screen, but they weren't always easy. Then you had the background image. The background image further constrained you. It was very low resolution, again, because they're trying to uh, conserve as much power and as many cycles as possible for other things. It drew the screen in two halves. So it divided the screen in two, drew one half, drew the other half. Those two halves of the screen either had to be identical or mere images of each other. You couldn't do something on one half of the screen that you weren't doing on the other half of the screen. Again, people came up with tricks at times, but that was also a constraint. So as you can see, there are a whole lot of constraints on how you can make a game on this video game system known as the VCS. It's frankly amazing they were able to do what they have been able to do with that system, considering just how limited it is. Exactly. It really was a talent, and it really was a special talent. These four programmers, Miller, Whitehead, Kaplan, and Crane, that left the company, 
were four of the best at dealing with this. Just because you were a hotshot programmer didn't mean you could necessarily do a good game on the VCS because there were so many considerations you had to balance and so many limitations you had to deal with. Already, they're starting out with an advantage. They're really good. They're not the only really good people at Atari. There are others as well, but they are really, really good. When it came time to make their own games, to make a statement and say, we are Activision and you want to spend your limited income on our games rather than Atari's games, they made a very conscious decision right up front that every single thing they put out had to be particularly graphically impressive. Because Atari had a lot of games that had really pretty good gameplay for the time, based on on the limitations of the time. VCS games in general were very, very ugly. It's blocky sprites. It's a fairly limited color palette. It's low-resolution backgrounds. There are a lot of reasons why it's hard to make things look good. But the Activision programmers were going to do everything in their power to make their games look more amazing than any other game, and that is how they were going to stand out from Atari. Now, uh, Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, has interviewed Steve Wright, who was another Atari programmer, not one of the Activision people, he never was at Activision, who started out as a programmer and then eventually became the head of the division. He became the head of the programmers after the Activision people left, but he did briefly overlap with them in terms of being an employee at Atari. He's convinced that the reason that the Activision people left in the first place was that they had a strong desire to do graphically impressive stuff and put graphics before everything else, and that they felt that Atari was really not pushing that, that Atari was interested in new gameplay experiences, but not necessarily as interested in the audiovisual aspect. I don't know. I mean, the Activision people themselves have never really said that, so I don't know that that's necessarily true, but there's no doubt that they were graphics forward. There are two very important things that even before we get into the specific games that are worth mentioning, and uh, David Crane told me about this. I did an email interview with him. I asked him, you know, what did it mean to make Activision games more artistic or more graphically interesting than other products? Just as a general philosophy, I mean, there are different programming tricks you can use, but what did it mean? And he said two things that are very interesting. First of all, he said that they were laser-focused on color choice. The VCS has a decent palette size for the time. I think it's uh, 128 colors or something like that. There are very few colors that are found in nature in that palette set. There are very few good greens. There are very few good blues. The palette is skewed into some really bizarre colors. And if you look at the early VCS games or even Atari's later VCS games like, say, Pac-Man, the 2600 version of Pac-Man, you see a lot of really bad color choices with fuchsias and browns and strange shades of blue that just end up with graphics that look kind of muddy and kind of not nice. One thing that the Activision people were always laser focused on is we have all of these colors, but let's make sure that we only use the colors that make sense in the context that we're working in. <laughs> Don't always pick the most convenient color. Pick one that actually makes sense within the context of the game. Precisely. Instead of Pac-Man being this brownish-yellow weird thing, make him actually yellow. <laughs> Instead of the ghost being whatever the heck it was that they were, make them actually be color-coordinated to how they were in the arcade. 
or at least even if you have to make them all one color, at least make them a color that is familiar from the arcade. The other thing that they were very careful about is that they wanted to stay laser focused on the fact that they are making games for consumers with CRT televisions that may have just gone out and gotten the absolute cheapest television that they could find. And that's what they're playing the game on. You know, it's really interesting about CRTs, and I'm sure Jeffrey can find some stuff to put in the show notes that illustrates this. And we've kind of talked about this before. CRT televisions are not precise in the way that they draw the picture and the way they have colors as modern systems are. They do a thing called overscan, where they technically go outside the bounds of the glass. This is very apparent if you play something like, say, Super Mario Bros. 3. You always wonder about that line that's sort of like ahead of where you're running. That's just sort of like it looks like it's drawing ahead of you, and it's like this black bar with blocks slowly being drawn in. That's because all those games assumed a CRT, and our older generation listeners will understand this. Younger ones will definitely not because everything's a flat panel monitor these days. CRTs used to be very rounded. And I mean rounded. You could put your hand on it and you could feel the curve on it. Especially the really Mm -hmm. old cheap ones. How they were drawn, they would overscan, overdraw outside of the bounds so that it could handle those weird edge cases of that curved glass so that it looked right when you actually stared at it. The fact that those monitors even worked with what they did is just kind of impressive (laughs) unto itself. Sure. It's crazy what they did, and it makes sense that they would try to design things to work with these cheap ways of doing things for drawing a screen. Because if you didn't, then people would play it on those screens and then go, well, this looks like crap. I'm not going to buy any more games because I can't play it. You know, the other thing is, as well, I mean, that's part of it, but the other and uh, perhaps even more important thing is, When you have a modern LED, OLED, LCD, whatever screen, you have perfect pixel control over that screen. You know, whatever your resolution is, that defines the number of pixels you have. And each one of those pixels on those monitors, you can turn on and off individually. If you want this pixel to be gray, that pixel is going to be gray or it's going to it's going to be blue. It's going to be whatever. You have precise pixel control over everything. But these old CRTs, the way they drew the screen is there was basically a magnetic field that was being manipulated to direct a beam of electrons. So these electrons were being directed to different parts of the screen magnetically, which is why you were ever one of those kids that was experimental and you ever put a magnet next to your television and then suddenly everything got bendy and all the colors got funky. That's the reason why, because you're interfering with the magnetic field within the CRT. That's how it's drawing across the screen. And as a kid who's done that, this is very true. (laughs) So it's not precise. Just because you're saying, okay, I want that pixel to be blue, the precision of that magnetic field isn't such that it's necessarily just that blue pixel that's hitting it. The next pixel over can bleed into it. So if you've got this pixel blue and the next pixel over white, those can kind of blend together and create something a little different than just the pure blue or the pure white that you think is going to be there. There are examples of this 
I know that Sierra games are often used as a demonstration of this because these are games that also paid attention to this phenomenon. If you play a Sierra adventure game, one of their really early ones, like Wizard and the Princess, on a modern screen, it looks really pointillated. It looks really strange the way that colors are very rigidly separated out and you have a lot of these weird artifacts that make it look kind of odd, quite frankly. But a CRT actually will bleed pixels next to each other together. You'll get a image where all of these individual rigid colors that look kind of strange next to each other all blend together to create a picture that actually makes sense to the eye because those pixels are not separate and distinct like on a modern monitor. Activision was very careful about this as well. They didn't develop on high-end monitors. This is from Crane again. They developed their games on the cheapest television set they could find in the store. You know, the development systems were advanced development systems, but they plugged them into cheap televisions because that's what people are going to be playing on. You may make this beautiful image on your high-definition monitor where the pixels are very precise and everything looks sharp and clear. Then it just looks awful when you get it on a fuzzy television where those things blend together. But if you make it on that fuzzy CRT television to begin with and see how those pixels are going to mix with each other and mess each other up, you can create an image that looks good on what people are actually playing on as opposed to what you're developing on. That makes sense, right? That does make sense. So you want to try and recreate in your development environment however your users are going to actually use the thing because usually if I'm developing something, I got a high-end system, I got high-end this, high-end that because that's my bread and butter. The people who are consuming your product, they are not doing that as part of their standard course of action. They're just going to get, okay, this is good enough. I have financial constraints to consider here. I'm going to get a good enough color television. Maybe there's some sort of sale, some sort of deal. I get this used one from a friend down the street who swapped out a capacitor on it. Mm -hmm. It does a little bit of weird things on Channel 4. Who knows? Right. Try to create your game in the same kind of environment as which it's going to be used. Blizzard has been famous in the past for that because they had yes. they would do that where they develop games on a high-end system and then play test them on lower-end systems so that they could get that gameplay to be smooth and consistent on lower-end systems so that they had a wide audience appeal. Absolutely. With that in mind, let's start taking a look at the games. We have to remember that when they announced their first games at the June CES, Space Invaders had just come out on the VCS a few months before. The entire way that people interacted with consoles was about to change. The entire way people played video games was about to change. It was going to be all about the Twitch action games. It was going to be all about emulating the latest stuff coming out of the arcade. Activision, as we'll see, is going to adjust to that new reality. But their first game started development in the old reality, the pre-Space Invaders reality, which is that reality where Atari was doing their best to try to create games that they thought would broadly appeal. So they were doing some coin-op conversions, but they were also doing board games and card games that they thought mom and dad might enjoy. There wasn't just this focus on arcade-style games quite yet, and so the first round of Activision games really illustrate that. There were four games, as I said, and those four games were Dragster, Checkers, Fishing Derby, and Boxing. Dragster and Boxing were kind of in the 
traditional arcade conversion, pre-Space Invaders style arcade games box. Atari had converted most of its coin-operated games to the VCS by 1980. The ones that already existed. Obviously, they continued to make new games as well, but their 1970s catalog was mostly converted by 1980. Some of the games that weren't as big a hit or weren't as necessarily as interesting or maybe were a little difficult to do something with, they had not converted yet. These two were examples of that. Dragster by David Crane was actually a conversion of uh, an old Atari arcade game called Drag Race, whereas Boxing was a conversion of a boxing game that had been under development at Atari but was never released. It reached the prototype stage. There's actually footage out there of it now because the prototype has leaked out. It was never actually released. So that one was done by Bob Whitehead. Dragster is really interesting because it's got a split screen going on, which you didn't see very often. It had a six-digit timer, which was something that was incredibly hard to do at that time. That was kind of an innovation in that game that wasn't done. It was kind of the hit of these first four. It sold about half a million copies, which kind of topped out the first group. It had big, bold sprites and split screen. It's not the most beautiful-looking game, but the technical things it did, like having those timers, having that split screen, were really impressive for its time. And it was a drag racing game. It's a side view, horizontally scrolling. You're racing each other or racing against the computer, you know, driving down this track. Boxing was an overhead view game. So it was boxing, but it was from an overhead perspective. Bob Whitehead was able to combine sprites combine player objects to create bigger, smoothly animated boxers. So uh, each boxer, I believe, is made up of two player graphics put on top of each other. So it uses all four of the player graphics in the game. It creates larger players by dividing them in two and having those sprites uh, joined together. Obviously, the concept of joining sprites together to make a larger object is something that becomes very, very common. I mean, NES games, Super NES games, Genesis games, and on and on and on have been combining sprites to make larger models since time immemorial. I mean, that's a standard thing, but it wasn't yet very common in this period. I don't think boxing was the very first one to do it. The idea that you can make a bigger object by coordinating the movement of two or more sprites in tandem something that boxing does really well. And the boxers look a little funny. They've been described as crabs by some people. They had kind of overhead silhouettes of people, and they just moved so smoothly. It's a game that is very satisfying in the way it moves and animates. So again, that really kind of made it stand out. Checkers, like I said, board games were a thing in the very early days. Everyone was doing board games. Very soon after this, people stopped trying to do board games for the most part because they don't sell. Nobody cares. I mean, why would you play checkers on the VCS and use a joystick to do all this finicky movement when you can just get out a checkers board and move the pieces? It it just doesn't make sense. Yes, checkers did come with a computer opponent as well, but there's only so much that AI can do on systems this primitive. It did have multiple difficulty levels, and on the higher difficulty levels, it did actually provide some challenge sometimes. But of course, the higher the difficulty level, the longer you had to wait for the game. Any computer in existence, even the most primitive computer, can technically play a perfect game of a game like checkers or chess because there's only a finite number of moves that can ever be made in the game. 
Now, that finite number of moves runs into the millions, but they are finite. A VCS could play a perfect game of checkers if you left it running for, you know, a thousand years or something. I don't know. (laughs) But you're constrained in how good it can do by how long you're going to let the computer think and let it run through moves and play out scenarios. So at the higher difficulty levels, you just wait a while. Checkers is not particularly visually impressive, but they were going to make it visually impressive. The plan was to make it 3D, like actual stereoscopic 3D, where you would put on 3D glasses and the board would be all three-dimensional. Turned out that uh, that was a bridge too far for the Atari VCS. I mean, they could make it do pretty wonderful things, but making it do stereoscopic 3D that you would actually want to stare at was not something you could make it do. So they abandoned that. Checkers is probably the least impressive in graphically in terms of those original four games, but it was meant to make a splash just like the other three. They just couldn't pull it off. Fishing Derby, the other one, that one started with the idea of the graphics first. David Crane created Fishing Derby as well. He was a real artist. Of the entire group, he was the one that was most artistically inclined. He was also a very talented programmer. He had that unique mix of left and right brain. His mother was actually an artist. His mother taught him some techniques in art and whatnot. So a lot of the visual impressiveness of the Activision games really comes down to David Crane. These guys, especially at the beginning, they developed in an open lab. They were constantly going around to each other's games, playing them, offering suggestions. It was a very collaborative environment at the early Activision. So David Crane's artistic sensibilities really bled into other people's games, too, not just into his own. He came up with this really kind of neat aquarium, you know, just fish swimming around on the VCS. Uh, David Crane not always, but often started with a visual idea or a visual trick and then was like, okay, how can I make this a game? So he had fish running around. They look beautiful. That's great, but it's not a game. So what do we do? Well, what do you do with fish? You catch fish. Okay, we'll have the player catch fish. We'll have fish at different depths, and they'll have a fishing rod. They'll try to catch the fish and bring in the fish, and you make it two-player competitive. Whoever captures, uh, whoever catches the most fish within a time frame wins. Okay, interesting how they made the fishing rod, the fishing line, I should say, rather than the rod. That was another innovation the crane made. So again, you can only have these five objects. They're all square, and they're very bulky. So you don't have an object that can really serve as a thin line. But you do have a ball sprite, which is just a one-pixel width, one-by-one pixel object. David Crane figured out a way to repopulate the ball sprite, reuse the ball sprite line by line, in such a way that it looks like all of those ball sprites are connected to each other and form one long object. It doesn't look like separate objects. It really looks like one integrated object, but it's the little ball sprite drawn again and again and again and again and again at a slight angle to itself on every line to make it look like one continuous thing. Now you've got fishing lines, you've got fish, you're catching fish. Well, it's still not fun. There's not that much skill involved in it at this point. It's just kind of uninteresting. So somebody, uh, I forget who, I, I... don't think it was Crane himself. I think somebody suggested it to him, but somebody put in the suggestion throughout the suggestion, you should have a shark in there. David Crane was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So now you have to catch fish, but you also have to avoid the shark, which can cut your line. And so, you know, the shark's not going to jump up and eat the player, but you have to guide your line in such a way that 
you don't lose your fish to the shark while you're reeling it back up. That made it a fun game. It became a mantra around Activision after that, that they would always look, if a game wasn't up to snuff, they would always talk about, okay, what's the shark here? How can we add a shark here? They didn't mean literally putting a shark, another shark into the game, but it became shorthand for how do we take an okay concept and punch it up into a fun concept? Look for the shark. Look where you can put the shark. That's kind of an interesting story around uh, a fishing derby. So those are the first four games that release in the fall of 1980 after being announced at June CES. You know, they're all pretty graphically impressive compared to the Atari output. Gameplay-wise, they're fine. They're not necessarily super impressive compared to the Atari output because Atari's got some people that know how to do gameplay. And, of course, now they're competing against Space Invaders and other arcade hits. So they do well. They do fine. They're successful. But like I said, Dragster is really, it sells half a million, and that's where it tops out in sales. In 1980, half a million was nothing to be sad about. That was a hit. You know, it wasn't a massive, massive hit. They released two more games before the end of 1980. I think around December is when they come out. Those two games are Bridge and Skiing. You can see we're still seeing that old line view of how things work. They released a board game in their first set. They released a card game before the end of the year. This kind of thing is just not going to happen anymore past 1980. This is kind of the end of pretending that people actually want to play those kind of games on a console. Now, obviously, much later, people play card games and everything else on video game systems. I'm not talking about for the entire history of the universe. Nobody wants to play these kind of games on a VCS when your entire control scheme is one joystick and one button. It's just not an efficient way to play a board or a card game. Exactly. The only reason you would play a board or card game in a modern system is either it's so complex with so many fiddly bits that it is just more efficient time-wise to just load the game up and then you can play, or the controls are very good, very easy to play and just go, uh, and just click here, click here, my turn's done. The best games are the ones that combine those two where you have a good presentation and good controls to play that game. And then, yeah, I want to play Scythe on my computer. Yeah, I want to play Monopoly on my computer. Yeah, I want to play Solitaire on my computer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Bridge was the first game by Larry Kaplan. We mentioned briefly how Larry Kaplan joined a little later than the others. He was going to be part of the group. Then he decided not to be part of the group. And then he came back to the group. So that's why he was the only one of the original four guys that didn't have a game ready to go in that initial June CES announcement because he started late. Bridge was Kaplan's first game. He did it because he was a bridge player. He liked bridge. He was never very good at it, as he put it himself, just the way his brain worked. He had problems clearing his cache, so to speak, between hands. It's just a mental thing with him. It's like he'd get confused about uh, the bidding from the previous round and, and the bidding in this round. And so he was never very good at it. But he liked Bridge, and Bridge was a card game that nobody had done yet on the VCS, and so he chose Bridge. It's a reasonable approximation of Bridge, considering the limitations of the system. The cards are very nice looking. The cards look much nicer than the cards on some of the previous VCS card games. You know, I mean, it's a card game. It, it doesn't sell well. That era is over. Uh, Space Invaders is here. We're doing arcade games now. Thank you very much. The other game, uh, Skiing, that was Bob Whitehead again. Bob Whitehead was the sportsman of the group. 
I wouldn't say he was the only sportsman. Alan Miller and David Crane were tennis players. There were other people who played sports too, but Bob Whitehead was particularly interested in sports, always had been. His entire output, both uh, at Atari on the VCS, then at Activision on the VCS, and then still later at Accolade, where he developed the baseball game Hardball and the football game Fourth and Inches for the Commodore 64, there was always this kind of through line. He did a few other games too, but he liked sports. He's the guy that's going to be converting sports and doing sports because it's just something that interests him. He did boxing in the first round. Now he's doing the skiing game. In his own words, he's also somebody that likes things that are over quickly, short and sweet. You know, he can play it over and over again, but he's not really the type to play in a 100-hour RPG, for instance. He likes quick, repetitive, get in, get out, do it again kind of gameplay. So doing the skiing game appealed to him because it's a downhill skiing game, so you're moving down the screen, completing a skiing course, avoiding obstacles within a, a quick time limit. You go down the mountain, you're done. You can play again, go down the mountain. It's quick, it's snappy, it's skiing. Hooray. There's not much to that one either. Uh, There's really not much more to say about it. But, you know, again, just like all the early games, it looks and and plays nice, but it is a, a pretty simple game. 1981 is when they really start getting into their stuff that is going to be massive hits. 1981 is when they are adjusting to this new paradigm of, okay, the arcade conversions of the latest Twitch games, like your Space Invaders, like your Defender, like your Missile Command, these games are starting to come home. This is the kind of game people are playing now, these action-y games, these shooter games. We need to make sure that we get in on some of this action stuff, but still do it in a way that feels new and different and interesting. They don't just want to do clones of what's in the arcade. And for the most part, they don't. We're going to have a couple of exceptions where they do. One thing uh, when they discuss the making of these games with various people, with myself and with other people, is you immediately sense that they're always looking for something a little different. Okay, we've done this, but we haven't done it quite like that. And I don't just mean at Activision, I mean in the industry generally. That's what they're looking to do. By way of example, We have David Crane's first hit, first million-selling hit, I should say, that comes out in the early part of 1981, Laser Blast. This was Activision's first million-seller. I don't know if it's the first one that hit a million copies sold, but it is the earliest release date game that sold a million copies, if that makes sense. Over the course of its lifetime, it may have hit a million, but whether or not it hit a million first, as far as all the games that it sold, right? as far as all the games that Activision sold, we don't know. Exactly. Certainly, it's the earliest one that sold a million units, earliest published. Laser Blast is a space game. David Crane wanted to do a space game because those are all the rage now. At this point, you've got your Space Invaders, your Galaxian, your Astro Fighter, you have a, a bunch of space games. So it's, it's pretty clear that they need to do a space game as well. He wanted to flip the script. All of these fixed shooters that are coming out are games where you are at the bottom of the screen. You have a spaceship or a gun battery or whatever you're controlling at the bottom of the screen and stuff is coming at you from the top of the screen. So he's like, well, that's been done. So why don't we flip the script? Why don't we do a game where you are on top of the screen and you are the spaceship, you are attacking a planetary surface. Mm. It's not a huge change, but it's different. It's a different paradigm. 
The other thing that makes it stand out is, of course, all of these games, you're shooting these little bullets, little laser beams, whatever they are, these little individual things. But for Laser Blast, he repeats the trick that he used in Fishing Derby to turn the ball sprite into a continuous thin line. So it's called Laser Blast because you've got these big, long lasers emanating from your ship and striking targets, and it's using that ball sprite over and over again to make it look like it's a continuous laser blast. It's their first space game. It looks a little bit different than the other space games on the market. It has that very satisfying big laser beam, which other games at the time don't have. You're scrolling from screen to screen. It's all single screen, but you're moving along the surface of the planet. It's moving you between these different groups of gun batteries. So it's a pretty simple game, but it's fast. It plays very fast, very smooth. And the laser, which is this multicolor blast, is just really impressive looking. The saucer spins. He animated your spaceship, which is not something you saw a lot of on the VCS at that time. Even though in some ways it's just another space shooter, it's got just enough of those unique Activision visual cues and gameplay cues to it to make you say, okay, this is something I haven't seen before. I want to own this space game specifically. So it becomes a million seller as a result, and that's just a great example of how Activision does that kind of thing. Another game that comes out early in the year is Tennis by Alan Miller. So I mentioned that Bob Whitehead was the sports person, but I also mentioned that Alan Miller was a tennis player. So was David Crane. Alan Miller had created a basketball game for the VCS when he was at Atari. This is one of those more impressive VCS games in the early days because he did a forced perspective, a kind of isometric perspective of the court to give the basketball court depth. So you weren't just moving straight head on each other and it wasn't an overhead view. It was a side view game. But because of the forced perspective, you could move up and down the court, not just left and right. You know, your standard isometric perspective. But that was something that no other game at that time was doing. So he wanted to improve on that. In this case, he was taking a technique that he'd already learned at Atari, and he wanted to do something else with that technique that was even more impressive. Refine the technique and do something more impressive. You know, they're not going to repeat themselves because they're all about not repeating themselves. So he's not going to do another basketball game to make this happen. He's been there, done that. And one of the big things about Activision is that for the most part, and we'll get to exceptions again, but for the most part, they try not to repeat themselves. He's a tennis player. He likes tennis. So he makes a tennis game instead. He does this forced perspective thing where you're looking down on the court, but you're looking at it at a slant. It's not pure overhead. Is it quite isometric or not quite that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's isometric. But I'm just explaining that the way it's tilted. It's not a diagonal like Zaxxon is. It's kind of top view, but it's tilted just a little bit so that you're looking at the characters from the side. Obviously, we'll put it in the show notes. One character is at the top of the screen, one player, the other character is at the bottom of the screen, and there's a net in between. They bat the tennis ball back and forth. And again, it makes good use of multiple sprites to create stick figures that are a little better defined than you could do with a single sprite. There's a little flick to the paddle Hmm. when they hit the ball, just a little animation. It's not much, but again, it's one of these little graphical touches that you don't normally see and just makes it 
that little bit more graphically impressive than something that you might see from Atari or from another company. Really, it seems like one of the things that Activision does in these early days is they add a little bit of extra whipped cream, a little cherry on top, that extra bit of polish Uh on top of each game. We're getting an animation with a flying saucer. We're getting little animations and little quality of life help draw you into the game thing with a flick of the wrist. Taking something that's not normally used in a certain manner and creating a multicolored laser beam. Right. They're just thinking outside of the box, really, and just putting on a little bit of extra polish, too. Absolutely. That's kind of their first two at the top of the year. Those two sneak out at the end of their first fiscal year because they have a fiscal year that runs. Can't remember if there's runs to March or runs to June, but you know their fiscal years don't align with the calendar years. So those first two games of 1981 also came out in their first fiscal year that they released any products. By fiscal 1980, they hadn't released any products yet. Their first fiscal year with any products ends in the middle of 1981. We've now gone through that entire year's worth of products. Dragster, Checkers, Skiing, Fishing, Derby, Bridge, and Boxing in 1980. Tennis and Laser Blast in 1981, all within fiscal 1981. As we get into their second year, this is the year where they really, really come into their own. They had one million seller in that first batch, in that first fiscal year laser blast. They're going to have a few really great selling games in this second batch. Before the end of 81, they release another four games. Our good friend Alan Miller is back again with his third game, if you're keeping score after Checkers and Tennis. He creates an ice hockey game. This is a continuation of what we have already seen in his basketball game and in his tennis game. He is continuing to experiment with improving the way that he shows various sports. This one is not going to be isometric like the others are. He does some really impressive figures in this one. He does the ball sprite trick that David Crane has used to create the hockey sticks, and then he actually widens the bottom one, figures out a way to make a stretched ball sprite to create the final part of the paddle and create this paddle shape. The big thing here is he was able to create, using very intricate timing and H-move techniques, He was able to have players moving around the ice that were different colors. He had two different teams, and they had two different uniform colors. The sprites themselves were multicolored, with the the heads were all red to represent the helmet. That was the ball sprite being reused again. Each player is made up of two player sprites. The torso and the legs are different colors, but then the two teams also have different colors. Because just as you can reuse sprites at different times per scan line, you can also change the color per scan line as well. It's not something that was used a whole lot in early games, but ice hockey is one of the early examples of where that's done. So again, even though if you look at it now, it plays a little slowly, it doesn't play as smoothly as some of the other early games. It's not isometric like his basketball and tennis games are, so in that sense it's not quite as impressive. The way he was able to create the stick 
and make the stick move around like it's shooting. And the way he was able to have multicolored sprites and have two different sets of multicolored sprites, that was really revolutionary and really unheard of on the system at the time. So even though it looks primitive today, that was a truly impressive feat all on its own. The fact that you'd even do that on a VCS is astonishing. Absolutely. Basically, in the second half of the year, everybody does one more game. Second half of 1981. So that was Alan Miller's second half of 1981 game. Bob Whitehead's second half of 81 game was Stampede. Stampede was essentially based on Space Invaders. He was inspired by Space Invaders. It was Space Invaders turned on its side, so it was horizontal instead of vertical. Again, he's looking for something that hasn't been done before. He's looking for a genre that hasn't been done before. So he comes up with the idea of something Western-themed. Because there had been a couple of games, you know, there'd been Gunfight in the arcade, and David Crane had done Outlaw on the VCS, which was a port of Gunfight when he was still at Atari. Atari had had an Outlaw game in the arcade that was different from the Outlaw game in the home. Westerns had not really been done before. Instead of having aliens coming towards you, moving down the screen, he has steers coming at you from the right side of the screen and moving to the left side of the screen. And they don't shoot at you because they're steers. They're not some weird, like, intelligent steers that have, like, rocket guns, because that would just be silly. But they come towards you, and you have a lasso, and you have to lasso them before they get past you. And if too many of them get past you, then you lose. (laughs) The idea is to keep the steers in front of you and lasso them. You can actually uh, collide with them to keep them in front of you. That doesn't kill you to hit them. So you can kind of try to move up and down and keep them knocked in front of you until you have a chance to actually uh, lasso them. That's the game. That's how it works. It's uh, Space Invaders except with cows and lassos. Again, it's uh, truly impressive graphically. He uses the Venetian blinds technique, which we've talked about before. It's something that he invented while he was at Atari for their chess game. So we've talked about how there are limitations on the amount of sprites that you can display on a single line. Even though you can reuse sprites and you have all these special tricks, you still eventually come up with some hard limits on how many sprites you can be using, how many player missile graphics you can be using at any given time. What Venetian Blinds does is it draws sprites every other scan line instead of every scan line to create larger images. So if you have a sprite on one scan line in this position, on the next scan line, you can have a different sprite in a different position, then you don't reuse the position of that first one until you get to the next line down and so on and so forth. I'm sure I'm garbling that a little bit. But it's called the Venetian blinds technique because it results in images and sprites that have lines where there's nothing there. So it's almost like looking outside through a set of blinds because there are gaps in the image you have created because you're alternating your scan lines reusing the sprites. In Stampede, you can see that most prominently in the player's horse. The horse has some very nicely for the time animated legs. You notice that those legs, there's gaps in them. The reason for that is that he used the Venetian blinds technique so that he could animate four legs in close proximity to each other without running out of the number of sprites that he could make use of to do that. Venetian Blinds wasn't used in that many Activision games, but this was a prominent example of it. And, of course, it's Bob Whitehead that did it. 
because Bob Whitehead is the one that invented the Venetian blinds technique in the first place. David Crane's game in this uh, latter half of 1981 is a game called Freeway. Game design ideas can come from all sorts of places. Creative people, uh, and David Crane certainly counts as a creative person, is definitely somebody who is able to draw from all sorts of experiences when coming up with game ideas. Freeway came out of an experience that he had at the June CES in Chicago, where he saw somebody trying to cross a busy intersection while weaving in and out of traffic. Kind of this daredevil, there's a big road, and you're trying to get from one end of that road to the other. He was like, well, there's a game idea here. This is definitely something that will be turned into a complete game, just moving through traffic and dodging traffic. And I know what you're thinking. I know what people are probably thinking at this point, and they're like, well, isn't that Frogger? Well, yes. I mean, the first part of Frogger is the same thing where you're avoiding traffic, but this does really seem to be a case of parallel evolution. They're both 1981 games. It's unlikely the developers of Frogger at Konami in Japan and David Crane ever saw each other's games while they were making these games. It's just one of these weird cases of parallel evolution. But Crane's idea specifically came from that experience watching that person weave through traffic. They also had an, a moment where they went out the wrong exit of the convention center and had to walk around to another exit of the convention center, and they had to dodge some traffic, too. So that he had these two traffic dodging experiences in close proximity to each other and was like, well, that's a game. You control a chicken that is trying to cross the road. A little bit of humor there. I mean, that's why he chose a chicken. Why did the chicken cross the road? Well, to score more points than his friend. That's why the chicken crossed the road. We now know the answer to that age-old question. So it could be one or two players and you're competing to get across the road more times than the other person. Again, this one is amazingly complex because he is both reusing sprites per line and changing colors per line. There had been games that reused sprites per line before. There had been games that changed colors per line before. But very rarely was there a game that both reused sprites and changed the colors as those sprites were being reused. David Crane, always the artist, he creates this gray road, and then he chooses colors for his cars. Again, it goes back to this idea that they want to be as graphically impressive as possible and make the best use of graphics as possible. He chooses colors for his cars that really pop against that gray background. So that's how we get Freeway, where you're navigating across the road, and that became a major hit. Crane is a real hit maker for Activision. By far the most successful game of 1981 at Activision was Larry Kaplan's second and final game with the company because he left it soon after, and that was the game Kaboom. Have you ever played Kaboom? I don't. I I forget which VCS games you have and don't have. But is Kaboom one you're familiar with? I have not played Kaboom. Kaboom is a real classic. Again, it's based on a Atari coin-op game. There are only so many coin-op games that Atari never converted, so you don't see many examples of this at Activision. But just like the boxing game and the dragster game, the drag racing game, in the initial lineup, this was based on another Atari coin-op game called Avalanche. Avalanche was a rock-catching game. You had these rows of rocks at the top of the screen. It wasn't a very graphically impressive game, so you had these 
they were like pong paddles, except there were three on top of each other, and this was supposed to represent a basket or a container, a barrel or something. It's just very abstracted. But basically, you move this contraption made up of these three paddles back and forth across the screen to catch the rocks that are falling from the top of the screen to score points, because all these early games are point-scoring games. So Kaplan decided he wanted to adapt that for the Atari VCS. Well, already you've got a problem, because Avalanche has a lot of objects. The VCS, no matter how clever you are with reusing sprites and everything else, there's really only so many objects you can have moving around at once before the game just becomes undoable, unplayable, whatever. He knows he has to scale down the number of objects on the screen, and he does that. He scales back the number of falling things. To compensate for this, he makes it so they fall much faster. The rocks and avalanche kind of fall at a kind of leisurely pace because they're falling from all over the screen, all over the top of the screen. It's not multiple directions, but from all parts of the top of the screen. So the challenge is to keep an eye on everything that's going on on the screen and pick up everything in the right order so that they don't fall to the ground. Because Kaboom is only going to have a small number of objects, they have to fall at a faster rate because then the challenge is to get there in time across a, a smaller play space. Kaplan is really talented amongst this group of four at balancing Twitch gameplay, at balancing action gameplay. He comes up with a great timing, the timing between the objects falling and your bucket moving back and forth, etc. He's not really an artist. Even though this is not David Crane's game, David Crane makes a crucial contribution to the success of the game by doing the graphics. So they decide to theme it as this mad bomber game. There's this criminal on the top of the screen that is chucking these bombs down and you have to catch the bombs. So David Crane creates this Mad Bomber character, which is a really distinct and interesting character. He's not animated, he doesn't need to be, but he just looks very nice for the time. He creates these bombs and these bombs have these little flickering fuses and they turn your bucket into a bucket of water and every time you catch one of these bombs, water splashes as you catch the bomb because it's being caught in the water and the fuse is going out so it doesn't blow up. All just wonderful little graphical touches. So you have the true great gameplay capability, gameplay design capability of Kaplan with the artistic talent of Crane, and they produce another million seller that is is definitely the biggest hit of calendar 1981 for the company. All right, so that takes us through 1981. <laughs> We're only going to 1984. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> we are, in fact, over halfway through what we are talking about here. 1981 is the last year that only the original programmers are creating games. In late 1981, they welcome their first programmers in that are augmenting this original group of four. Of course, as I said, Larry Kaplan departs, so we won't see any more from him whatsoever. According to... Carol Shaw, who was one of the people they hired, Activision was sued by Atari for theft of trade secrets and patent violations and this and that and the other thing. The lawsuit was unsuccessful because the Activision people were very careful when they left the company, so the suit did end up settling. According to Carol Shaw, who was not there at the time but presumably heard it from the people who were there at the time, 
part of that settlement, which of course is confidential, so we still don't really know what the settlement was, part of that settlement was the Activision people were not allowed to hire any more people away from Atari. Atari didn't want them poaching more people to come work for them. So they got that into the settlement. They couldn't recruit current Atari employees to be part of the company. So when they decided that they were doing well, they were making lots of money, and it was time to expand, they were limited in what they could do in terms of finding people that would already have the talent necessary to work with this very finicky system. So they end up hiring two people. One of them is Carol Shaw, who had actually worked at Atari, but she had since left the company to join another company called Tandem Computers. So she was not off limits as part of this don't hire people from Atari thing. She was a very accomplished programmer, and she had actually created a checkers game that came out at basically the exact same time as Alan Miller's checkers game came out. The Activision people were very impressed with her checkers game. They also knew her because they overlapped in employment at Atari. They were very impressed with the checkers game, and so they were like, yes, let's bring in Carol Shaw. And so they made Carol an offer, and she accepted one of the few female programmer game designers in this time period. Then for their other guy, David Crane had a buddy who he had gone to school with, had gone to DeVry with in Arizona, who had worked with him at National Semiconductor in hardware, named Steve Cartwright. They were friends. They had kept in touch. So when they were looking for other people, David was like, well, I've got my friend Steve Cartwright. Why don't we bring him in? And everyone's like, sure. We have these two augmenting our original group. Steve Cartwright, who, like I said, was a hardware guy originally, didn't go to school for programming, was never even really that big a fan of games, particularly, ended up being actually a really good game designer. So the first game that he created for the company, which was released in 82, was a game called Barnstorming. He got the idea. It was very similar to how David Crane got his idea. He got the idea because he saw one of those old-fashioned kind of biplanes flying through the sky carrying a banner. He was just driving down the highway one day and saw one of those prop planes carrying a banner, which is something you still occasionally see today sometimes. People will pay a plane to go up and fly around in circles with a banner advertising something. So he saw that and he was like, you know, that would be a good idea for a game. Not the advertising part, but just flying one of these uh, old-timey planes around. So he created Barnstorming. That's a horizontally scrolling game where you're flying across the screen, dodging objects, avoiding stuff. You know, kind of typical obstacle avoidance kind of gameplay. But again, it's got that graphical flair because they decided to do something a little special with it again to stand out. That's a common theme of these games that we're talking about. So they decided to create a sunset at the top of the play field. That's really quite difficult to do because you're manipulating line by line to have slightly different color gradients to create something that looks like it's believably shifting through the colors of the sky during a sunset. And of course, we'll put barnstorming in the show notes, just like we're putting everything in the show notes. But that sunset looks really cool. I mean, you know, the gameplay's fine. You know, it's an obstacle avoidance game. You have to avoid windmills and, I guess, geese, flying birds of some kind. And you have to drive through barns. There's the barn part of barnstorming. You have to drive through barns, all for scoring points and all of that kind of stuff. What really makes it stand out is that fantastic sunset in the background, which is just so graphically impressive on a VCS. Carol Shaw, in 1982, produces another million seller for the company and definitely one of their most classic games that they've made called River Raid. 
River Raid came about because Carol Shaw was very impressed with the arcade game Scramble. It's a game that we've talked about before. It was essentially the first classic horizontally scrolling shoot 'em up. Carol Shaw wanted to do a game like Scramble. So she told the people, this is my idea, this is what I want to do. Again, Activision is always trying to do something different. They said, well, you know, space games have been done. And as a matter of fact, at the same time, Steve Cartwright is doing a space game called Mega Mania, which is basically a riff on the game Astro Blaster from Sega, an arcade game. He basically took the basic gameplay from Astro Blaster, added in a few other things from other space shooters, and it was kind of his attempt to produce what he thought was the ultimate space shooter. Mega Mania was very successful, and Mega Mania also came out in 1982, but they didn't want to do another space shooter. They didn't want Carol Shaw to also do a space shooter. They were like, okay, the whole shooting thing's fine. We like that, but please don't make it a space shooter. So she starts thinking. She thinks within the constraints of the hardware again. First, she's going to make it vertically scrolling, not horizontally scrolling. Vertical scrolling works better on the VCS because since it draws the screen scan line by scan line, it actually can update the screen in such a way that vertical scrolling can just be naturally done by the hardware, whereas horizontal scrolling has to be programmed. It has to be done in software. So she decides to make an overhead view vertically scrolling game. And then she's looking at the background. It's like, as we said before, the background is in two parts. It draws the background in two parts. So those two parts have to either be identical to each other or they have to be mirror images of each other. So she thought to herself, okay, well, if I'm drawing the background in two parts, then it can be a river with islands in it because a river naturally bisects the screen right down the middle. Then you can have your shorelines that are identical or mirrors of each other, and then it looks like a shoreline. She decides that she'll take advantage of that to create a game that's set on a river. So she creates the game River Raid, where you're controlling a plane that's moving up this river and shooting at things. I believe in this one, the things don't shoot back at you, as in some shooters. It's it's merely a you-shoot-everything-you-can-for-points kind of thing. And obviously collision avoidance. Yes, and collision avoidance. You have to dodge things. They don't shoot back. You know, it's a target-rich environment. It scrolls nicely. You have to pay attention to your fuel, too. That's another thing she borrowed from Scramble. Scramble has a fuel gauge. In Scramble, you can bomb fuel tanks to get more fuel. So in River Raid, uh, you have a fuel gauge, and there are little fuel things on the screen that you can shoot to replenish your fuel. So it's got that Scramble stuff, but it transfers it to this river environment so that it's just a little bit different and takes advantage of the way that the system draws backgrounds. The way that she's able to get a lot of variety into it is also an interesting thing and something that's going to come up again in the course of this episode. Because, of course, in terms of having different background images, we have to remember that an entire game has to fit into 4K. So you can create all of these very different, all of these different backgrounds, but you can only do so many background screens before you've used up all your available memory when you talk about all the other things that have to go on too, like sprites and scores and timers and everything else that's happening. What she does to get this to work well is she generates them algorithmically instead using a pseudo-random number generator. You know, a random number generator is a way to get around the rigid constraints of the way a computer works. When you're programming a computer, a computer likes to do everything exactly how you tell it to do it, and it likes to do everything in the exact order you tell it to do it in. This is the complete death of anything that's supposed to be done randomly. In order to try to do something randomly on a computer, you can create a random number generator, which is basically you give it a series of formulas 
that you tell it to take a number through. You give it a starting number, and then it takes it through all of these formulas, all of these algorithms, and it spits something out at the end that is random because of the way you've set up your equations. What really makes it random is that you start it by telling it to pick a number between whatever, then it runs that number through all those algorithms and you get your results. River Raid uses a pseudo-random number generator, which means that it has the same algorithms that a random number generator would have, but you always start with the same number. You always start with the same seed. So if you start with the same seed, that means you get the same thing every time. Sort of like procedural generation that we've talked about before in other episodes where you generate a play field like Elite. Right. You generate your space based off of a certain series of algorithms and you know what that seed is. And as long as you know whatever that seed is, you can create the same thing programmatically as opposed to having to actually have everything drawn out and preset beforehand. Exactly. It's all done by numbers. She creates a diverse and ever-changing river environment by using a pseudo-random number generator to create all of these different possibilities. So yeah, that, that's River Raid. I mean, again, it's a big hit. Both Steve Cartwright and Carol Shaw really add to the Activision legacy. They're both very, very good, just like the people that are already there. So those are our new people. Our existing people also make some new games as well. Each of our three original programmers also makes a game in 1982. Three original programmers, because as you'll recall, I said Larry Kaplan is already gone. Alan Miller decides to make a version of the Atari 400-800 classic Star Raiders, which was one of the first true killer app computer games, but had not really at this point been translated to the VCS. So he creates a game called Star Master as his 1982 release, it's got that cockpit view, Starfield scrolling towards you and shooting ships that come towards you, just like in uh, Star Raider. So it has some pretty cool sprite scaling and stuff going on. I don't really know much about the creation of the game. It hasn't been talked about very much other than that he was very consciously creating a version of Star Raiders. He said that it wasn't coincidence. I don't think it's a particularly uh, successful game as far as Activision games go. So we'll kind of leave it there. That was kind of his game of the year. Bob Whitehead does two games. He does what's essentially a sequel to skiing called Sky Jinx. It's not a sequel in the sense that it's another skiing game. It's the exact same type of gameplay. In skiing, you're racing down a mountain, you know, from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. In Sky Jinx, you're doing the same thing, except you're racing from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen while avoiding obstacles in the same way that you were avoiding obstacles in skiing. It's not a shooting game. It's just avoid objects game. In that sense, it's kind of like barnstorming in an overhead view. So it's not particularly new or original, but it has really nice shadows. All the objects have shadows. Again, that's something that's pretty impressive for the time period. So even on a simpler, more straightforward, less interesting game like this, they're still doing their best to keep things graphically interesting. The other game that he does that year is a much bigger hit. Sky Jinx isn't really anything to write home about. He also does another game in 1982 called Chopper Command. Chopper Command is quite simply Defender. He makes no bones about that. And he says that himself. It's like, yeah, Defender was a really cool game, so I'm going to make Defender. With a helicopter. Yes, it's a helicopter instead of a spaceship. 
it's pretty much exactly the same. It has the same type of laser as Defender. You're shooting things coming at you like in Defender. There's a radar at the bottom of the screen, just like the radar in Defender, which, again, is something pretty graphically impressive. He uses that sunset, that same sunset, more or less, that's in uh, Barnstorming is also in this one. There's no rescue element in it like Defender, but you're protecting convoys of trucks. There are trucks along the bottom of the screen, and the enemy bombers are trying to blow them up with their bombs. So instead of preventing things from being taken off the surface, you're preventing things from being blown up. It's the same basic gameplay. It's it's Defender. There's really nothing more to say about it except it is a massive hit because Defender's popular. This is a good rendition of it. It's another one of Activision's million-selling properties. The biggest hit of the year, though, and the biggest Activision VCS hit of them all comes from David Crane. That is the absolute classic game, Pitfall. Have you played Pitfall? I've played Pitfall, not on the VCS, but I played Pitfall on a Commodore 64. I played a version of it on the PC. I recall playing it on two separate mm-hmm. systems. I recall a PC port I played it and a version that I played on the Commodore 64. Gotcha. Pitfall started once again, just like Fishing Derby did, with David Crane coming up with a really cool artistic thing. In this case, it was coming up with a running man. Doing animated figures on the VCS is really tough. So he kind of set himself to the task of doing a running man on the system. So he got that going. It's a combination of different player sprites and ball sprites of different sizes and different colors, all put together and manipulated in such a way that they're moving around. And he created this running man, and he's like, okay, I've got a running man. Now what do I want to do with it? Well, he's not sure. So at first he thinks, well, do a cops and robbers game where, you know, you're being chased in a traditional Keystone Cops, like cops and robbers kind of setup. So he creates a little prisoner guy and creates a kind of cityscape environment. And it just, it doesn't look very good. It's kind of blah. He's all about the interesting colors and interesting dynamics. And none of that's really working for him. So then it gets to be uh, the end of 1981. And he's still thinking, okay, what'll I do? Then Raiders of the Lost Ark comes out. (laughs) He's like, yes, I will set this in a jungle. I will have an adventurer in a jungle gathering treasures, just like that opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then he's like, you know, I want a vine, like in Tarzan. That was another influence. Once he set it in a jungle, he's like, Tarzan's also in a jungle. I want vines swinging like Tarzan. Crocodiles and alligators and water pits. And then a third influence was an old Heckle and Jekyll comic strip, in which Heckle and Jekyll, they're these two crows, run across these alligators that are snapping at them. So that's where he comes up with that visual of the, of the alligators. He decides that he's going to have this game where you're running through the jungle, swinging on vines, jumping over alligators, avoiding obstacles, and collecting treasures, because this is still a, a score-chasing era. Even though this is the first of what you could consider to be a scrolling platformer game in a way, it's not like a Mario game where your objective is to get to the end of the level and then do the next level. There's just one level, and your job is to find all the treasures hidden in it to score points. It's a score-chasing game. Collect all the treasures, as many treasures as you can, within the time limit the game allows you. So he's got this jungle thing going. He makes very clever use of the backgrounds. 
He uses various player objects, like he gives the trees more definition by using sprites and integrating sprites into the background. He doesn't just use the background graphics to create those areas. He's got this thing going on, and he's like, well, this is too linear. It's fine that we're avoiding objects and collecting treasures, but we're just walking across the screen over and over and over again, and surely I can do something to make it a little less linear. Got to find that shark. Right, got to bring that shark. You got it. Got to get that shark in there. So he comes up with the idea of doing an underground area as well. If you go underground, you skip screens. So the underground areas, I think, are the equivalent of three above-ground area screens. So it becomes a strategic thing. It's like, when do I want to go down below to take a shortcut, but when do I have to stay up above to make sure I don't miss a treasure? Because I need to make sure I can touch every screen I need to for purposes of treasure collection up above. And then being able to go back and forth when you go past a difficult area up above and being able to bypass certain areas by going through the cave system is an advantageous thing. Right. So it creates this kind of strategic element to it and gives the game more depth. Again, he wants to create a game world that's big and fun to explore and go through all these obstacles. So he does the exact same thing that Carol Shaw does in in River Raid is he creates a pseudo-random number generator. For math reasons, the maximum number of things the pseudo-random number generator that he has can generate is 256. So he makes a massive game of 256 screens. Which is huge. Which is huge for a VCS game. But he does it all algorithmically through the pseudo-random number generator. We've already established from the previous game with the rivers and generating that. Exactly. It's a huge game. It's a beautifully animated game for a VCS game. We do have to remember that we're judging all of these things within the context of the system and not in the context of modern day. It's beautifully animated. There's lots of activities to do. There's exploration. There's obstacle avoidance. There's the strategy of moving above and below ground. It's got a jungle theme at just this time where Indiana Jones is really big. They do a television commercial behind it, which we'll put in the show notes. As a lot of people by now know, I think, it stars a very young Jack Black, who was, in fact, a child actor. The commercial features Jack Black, uh, obviously, before he was famous. They put a lot of marketing muscle behind it, and it sells about three and a half million copies in 1982. It becomes the big hit of Christmas. It's probably part of the reason why Atari has such a disastrous Christmas, because You know, Atari's big games that they were planning for Christmas 1982 to be their big sellers were Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. Well, Pitfall looks and plays better than either of those games. Mm -hmm. Plus, even though it's not an officially licensed Indiana Jones game, it's a much better Indiana Jones game than Raiders of the Lost Ark is. Oh, yeah. So you're going to buy Raiders of the Lost Ark or are you going to buy Pitfall? Yeah, I'm going to buy Pitfall. You're going to buy Pitfall. So I'm sure it took sales away from Raiders, which ended up being a major commercial disappointment for Atari, let alone the way it just put E.T. to shame. Because E.T., you're running around multiple screens, and you are in Raiders as well. But these multiple screens are very sparse. There's not much happening. There's very little action, and the animation stinks. And it's top-down. And it's top down Uh, because Howard Scott Warshaw didn't have time to do it properly. I mean, there's mitigating circumstances, but the point is Pitfall was the big holiday release of Activision and it just put the Atari output to shame. And I'm sure that's a big part of the reason why the Atari output didn't sell as well as Atari hoped it would, particularly Raiders. I mean, E.T. still sold pretty well. They just made too many of them. Raiders was a disappointment. And I think Pitfall had a lot to do with that. 
David Crane actually also did a second game in 1982. It wasn't nearly as big a hit as Pitfall, but it is interesting technically. He also did a racing game called Grand Prix. Grand Prix was, in a way, a takeoff on Dragster. It's a traditional racing game, not a drag racing game. It's a traditional track racing game. So in that sense, it is not like Dragster, but he wanted to figure out a way to do more interesting multicolored cars because Dragster's cars are pretty bland looking in that sense. There had been an overhead driving game, Street Racer, actually done by Larry Kaplan, that was just like Grand Prix, was kind of a takeoff on the Taito Speed Race kind of game where you're driving down a straight road and you're avoiding other cars on the screen as you drive. But he wanted to try to do one that was more interesting graphically. So he did two things that are are very interesting with it. First of all, he took advantage of the fact that when you reuse a sprite on a line, you can change the width of the sprite as well. Now, the width is only a maximum of eight pixels tall. There's only so much you can do. But he created cars that were made up of reused sprites, but then he changed the width so the, the front of the car is smaller than the back of the car. So he changed the sizes of the sprites as he reused them. He also changed the color as he reused them and did some very interesting color gradients to make them very colorful. Then on top of that, he animated the tires of the car in a very clever way by having the wheel sprites be two colors. They would be black, but then in certain areas they would match the color of the road. He would put these little spots in them where they match the road color instead. By changing those sprite patterns per frame, because it has that road color, it makes it look like the wheels are turning very efficiently without having to use extra colors to make that happen. Grand Prix, not as big a game as as Pitfall. I mean, Pitfall is really David Crane's tour de force. Grand Prix also does a very interesting job of showing what you can do with sprites of different colors, of different sizes and even get some pretty impressive animation in. I mean, it, it just looks fantastic for a VCS game. I know I keep saying that over and over again, but we have to remember that that really is the theme of Activision on the VCS. We want to make things as graphically impressive as possible. You'll really see this when we actually get the show notes, if you take a look at them. Take a look at any other game that Atari's putting out around the same time and compare them to these Activision games. It is just night and day, the difference between the two. It really is. It really is. The other trick with Grand Prix is that you have cars appearing on one side of the screen and disappearing off the other side of the screen. The problem here is that by default, the VCS hardware wraps around. If you have a sprite going off the front of the screen or going off the back of the screen, part of that sprite by default will reappear at the front of the screen. You'll be sawing your car in half. And half your car will be on one side of the screen and half your car will be on the other side of the screen. So the other thing you had to do is make very specific sprites and do very specific timing with those sprites. He had to create objects that were just a fraction of the race car, not the entire race car, and do the timing just right so that if they're on the front of the screen, it uses just that one sprite that is just a portion of the car so it doesn't appear on the other side of the screen as well. It took a whole lot of programming uh, time and trial and error to get that to work. 82 is the high point. We're not going to stop with 82. We're going to briefly talk about a little bit of stuff going forward just to kind of wrap things up. 82 is really the height of things. You have 
Chopper Command and River Raid are both million sellers. Pitfall is a multi-million seller that is absolutely huge. It's the high point of the industry. It's the high point of Activision. They do keep creating games going into 1983 and into 1984. Most of those don't do as well just because the market is falling apart. Again, if there's a theme to some of what they're doing, it's just trying to come up with more new and interesting ways to do the same old thing and set themselves apart from what other companies are doing. Steve Cartwright, for instance, in 1983, does a game called Sequest. He basically does Sequest because nobody's ever really done a submarine game. It's another take on Defender, essentially, because you're rescuing divers while avoiding or shooting obstacles, and you have a limited supply of oxygen that uh, serves as another time limit. You know, it's kind of, it's Defender again, but in a submarine context, because nobody's really done a submarine. And he reuses that Activision Sunset. The Activision Sunset is so impressive, they use it over and over again. And yes, Sequest has a shark. A literal shark, because of course it does. David Crane, meanwhile, he does a game called Decathlon. I mean, obviously the Olympics were coming up in 84 in Los Angeles. That was a big deal because the Olympics were coming to the United States. The Summer Olympics were coming to the United States for the first time in a very long time. So you see a lot of Olympic-themed games around this time because those Los Angeles Olympics had a lot of hype around them. So obviously there's that, but the real reason he did Activision Decathlon is because he had created the Running Man in Pitfall. But he really wanted to be able to create a bigger Running Man, one that was 16 pixels high instead of just 8 pixels high. That's impossible to do in a game where there's a lot of other stuff going on. Like in Pitfall, he couldn't have made Pitfall Harry twice as high because of all the other sprite stuff, player missile stuff that was going on on the screen at the same time. Just wouldn't work. So he realized that if you do like a time trial running event, he could take his running man, just have him racing the clock in a track and field type event, and then he could make him bigger the way he wanted to. So he did uh, the decathlon game in 1983 as a takeoff on that. Alan Miller, just as both uh, David Crane and Steve Cartwright were kind of working on making different variations or improvements on things that they had already done in the past, Alan Miller takes a similar approach with his 1983 game, Robot Tank. In uh, 1982, he decided to take on the challenge of doing Star Raiders, an Atari 400-800 computer game with forward scrolling and first-person view, on the VCS, which was very difficult. In 1983, he decides to take Battlezone, the first-person tank game, and do the same kind of thing with Robot Tank. Again, I don't really know much about Robot Tank, the story of its creation. Can't really dwell on it for too long. It's not, again, not considered one of the absolute most classic Activision games, necessarily. It takes what he managed to do in uh, Star Command one step further Because instead of being in space, he has to scroll in first person a land environment. It's got really impressive. It uses gradations and bands of color to make it look like you're moving across this terrain. And it's got that Activision sunset in the background again. I'm telling you, they loved that sunset. Because it really was tricky. Because doing different gradients of color on each line like that on the Atari VCS was not easy. And so they were pretty proud of that. 
which is why they kept using it over and over again. <laughs> Almost became sort of like a signature they put on all their games. Yeah, just in, in every game that it made sense, you know, in every game that you might see a sunset, you know, it basically showed up. That's kind of what everyone's doing in 1983 on the VCS. Bob Whitehead actually goes off and does an Intellivision game. <laughs> the only time that he did an Intellivision game called uh, Happy Trails. So that was kind of his 83 thing. Not a VCS game like all the others were talking about. And then, of course, uh, by 1984, the market's pretty much dead. And they've basically transitioned over to computer games. But I did want to talk about one game in 1984 and one only because it illustrates what could have been a future for the VCS if the market hadn't fallen apart and does become something that's very important to Nintendo's strategy in later generations. Pitfall, of course, was a massive, massive hit. We already mentioned that. They naturally wanted to do a sequel to the game. So David Crane for 1984 created Pitfall 2, The Lost Caverns. The interesting thing that he did in this is he knew that by 1984, the Atari VCS was way past its prime. He had already basically pushed the VCS to its limits doing Pitfall for that type of gameplay. So to create something even bigger and better and more impressive than that was going to be nigh on impossible. He had been a hardware designer before he'd been a programmer. He had been a chip designer at National Semiconductor before he joined Atari. He decided to create a microchip called the Display Processor Chip that he would put in the Pitfall 2 cartridge to give the 2600 extra graphical capability, the ability to have more sprites on the screen, as well as to give it the ability to play four-voice music, because the sound on the Atari <laughs> VCS, I mean, there wasn't much to it. So he created a chip and put it in Pitfall 2 so that he could create this bigger, more expansive world that scrolled horizontally and vertically and had so many more places to explore, and more interesting sprites, more interesting obstacles and enemies to avoid. That idea of putting a chip in the game, I can't say definitively that it had never been done before before he did that. But it certainly wasn't common at that time. But it gave the VCS a new lease on life in a way. It allowed the VCS to do something far more interesting than it could do natively, even with all the tricks. But of course, it's the only game that ever used it because by the time Pitfall 2 came out, the Atari market was completely dead. There wasn't going to be an opportunity to keep extending things in that way. But that's exactly what Nintendo did on both the NES and the Super NES to keep those systems relevant for longer than you would think. Most famously, the Super FX chip that's in Star Fox, but also a bunch of other memory mapper chips on the NES that allowed the system to do all sorts of advanced stuff that it couldn't do native to the hardware. Innovating to the end, Pitfall 2 The Lost Caverns was one of Activision's very last 2600 games of this time period. It continues to show that spirit of pushing forward, doing things no one else has thought of, and providing experiences on that system that you couldn't find anywhere else. I mean, there's a reason that Activision gained such a reputation for being so amazing on the VCS, and, and hopefully some of the stuff that we've explained, some of the philosophies we've explained, and the inspirations we've explained, and the technology we've explained goes a long way to, to explaining why that was. I encourage all of you to go out there and look at old VCS games and look at the product that Activision has put out there and just compare it to the competitors. It is really striking just how 
innovative how well they were able to push the capabilities of that system. It's something that you have to really see to believe in our verbal conveyance of what we're trying to say here is not doing it justice. (laughs) Absolutely. But of course, we will put all of these games that we mentioned uh, in the show notes. There's tons of YouTube videos of all of these games, as well as games of their competitors. You can definitely see for yourself some of the stuff that we've been talking about in this episode of the podcast. All right. So now that we've looked at a bunch of games from Atari, what's our next Atari episode? (laughs) Well, I suppose we should probably take a break from Atari again for a little bit. I'm sure we'll be back. We always come crawling back. Are you sure it's so much as we're crawling back as we're being dragged back, kicking and screaming? (laughs) We'll leave that as an exercise to the listener. So next time, uh, we should probably switch gears here once again and talk about something a little more modern. Not right up to the present day, because we don't go up to the present day in this podcast, but we spend a lot of time in these really early years, and sometimes we need to venture beyond the relative safety of these early times and, and do something a little more modern. So I think next time we'll take a look at another company that comes up every so often, not nearly as often as Atari, that being Sega. And take a look at the waning years of Sega in the console market and talk a little bit about why things went so horribly wrong for the company and why, even though a lot of people very fondly remember some of the things that Sega did in the 16-bit era, even as they were reaching their greatest heights, planting the, the seeds for their own destruction. The Dreams of Sega, next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 